Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's December the 22nd, 2022. Lots of twos. We're getting two towards at least 2023. Uh, almost the mid-20s, we're beginning to get a sense of what the 2020s are like. Decades are unusual things. Um, they're unnatural, but we like to generalize about them. I've been particularly taken by a series that The Nation magazine has been running this week uh, and this issue on the 1990s and what we can learn from it. Uh, we did an interview earlier this week with Mary Annais Hegler, an environmental writer, uh, on what we can learn about environmental activism uh, from the 90s. And one of the other pieces that intrigued me in the nation this week on their 90s series uh, was a piece by my guest Joanne McNeil, America Online, a cautionary tale. Uh, Joanne is joining us from New Hampshire. Joanne, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. How old? I, I don't mean to pry, Joanne, uh, but I'm assuming you weren't online in the 1990s, were you? Were you an I AOL was. girl? I was. I was um, in high school. I was a very enthusiastic AOL user. Wow. So um, what do you remember about the 90s as an internet user? How exciting was it when you were in high school? Well, for me, it was it connected to my interest in culture, zines, magazines. I could log into the internet as I knew it. It was actually just an online service. Click on a few message boards connected to magazines that I already read, like Spin Magazine. And there would be individual forums with other AOL users that would communicate about bands, um, about various topics, cultural topics. And it was a pretty simple exchange. Um, in this piece, I talk about how the early experiences of uh, early online experiences as AOL sold to the public were leisurely and leisurely as in communicating with strangers, which is a big difference from the social media that we're used to today where you log in and you look for the people you know. Right, you're on yeah. Twitter, of course. You have quite a, a, a decent following. We all know who everybody is, supposedly, although Elon Musk doesn't seem to think that. Um, you also wrote a book uh, called Lurking. That's your latest book. Um, a book about how a person became a user, an internet book. To, to what extent in the 90s and in, in, in your AOL piece and in the AOL experience did a person become a user or did we only become users in the Web 2.0 period? Uh, I happen to like the word user as a way to differentiate just a, a person versus the identity you have when you're part of a social media or on the internet, um, as in, if you are a user of Twitter, you're, you're not, you're, you're limited to, to doing certain things that, that Twitter has control over and you necessarily don't. Um, but in the 90s, I'd say that something nice about this piece, The Nation came to me to, to write about AOL, it, 
it launched to the public in 1991. It was a it, it rebranded itself. It had been called the Source, and it, it, it was active in the 80s. The actual company, but when it rebranded re itself as America Online, that was 1991, and it was acquired by Time Warner. It rather it acquired Time Warner in 10 years later. So you have that that full decade, um, all of its changes, the way that it it marketed itself to the public from if, if you were around in those days or if you heard it. We all remember that. You've Got Mail. I, I remember yeah. actually one of the, the defining moments of the 90s. I was an internet entrepreneur or wannabe internet entrepreneur. Most of us remember where we were or what we were thinking when we heard that uh, Time Warner had acquired AOL. Do you want to remind our, our viewers of, of, of when that deal was and the numbers involved? <laughs> That's a little bit tricky because I that was one area that because I had like a hard stop, um, I didn't go as deep into it. Uh, it was 2001. It was at that time, I, I believe the market cap was something like 300 billion. So we're talking about a, a major enterprise on par with what Facebook is today. Not not necessarily one of the giant majors, but like major, major. The difference was, of course, the culture quite different and that split happened later um but this was a, a pretty sizable uh company yeah, it was an amazing deal and of course it yeah. was a terrible it was a great deal for aol it was a terrible deal for time warner uh, steve um case the ceo of aol has been on this show a few times in the past so when you talk about um AOL as a cautionary tale. What, what, what does that suggest? Where's the caution? Um, I, 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 I wouldn't necessarily, you know, had a, the title I don't necessarily have control over. I, I would say um, what can we means. learn from in, in the 2020s with, you know, Elon Musk now throwing everybody off Twitter, uh, all these crypto scams. What can we learn or what should we learn both positive and negative from the AOL experience. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, with AOL, one area that I did find very fascinating, it, and I would recommend anyone interested in the subject, look up the Washington Post reporting at the time about how AOL was, was hit by the dot-com crash, meaning that a lot of its advertisers um, had been dot-coms and they couldn't, pay their bills. Um, and all of a sudden, AOL was hit with, with significant losses. So this, this is just one area where advertising becomes very fickle for a company. It's it's not a stable enterprise. It's, it's relying upon its advertisers. With Twitter, especially, we see a lot of its advertisers fleeing. Facebook, I feel like because it's, it's at this stage of, it's just so enormous. Uh, it, it it has. I, I don't. I don't feel like we can say that advertising leaving Facebook alone is something to kill the company. Uh, but mm. but that. But that's kind of going on. Um, but to to remind everyone of the AOL business model, it wasn't like Google or Facebook or Twitter. It wasn't entirely reliant on advertising in the early days when we all started using it back in the early 1990s. We paid. They, they yeah. sent those discs out in the mail and then you paid $10, $10 a month for internet access. And it was mostly email. This was even pre-browser. So it was, it was a walled garden, wasn't it? 
Yeah, it was a walled garden. And that was that I found to be some of the most fascinating um, things that I encountered in my research was how AOL executives responded to the World Wide Web, which again, launched for the launched to the public in 1991. So these the web and AOL grew at roughly the same time. Now, the web very early on was used a lot of for like magazines for static content, it didn't necessarily have the what we associate with web 2.0 features until the next decade. But it, it was clearly heading there. And I found wasn't it dependent on the browser. I remember when we all went on, we, me and my friends went on um, AOL in the early 90s, there was no Netscape. So it was really hard to get on the internet. You needed to yeah. be relatively sophisticated in technological terms. Yeah. And I would say that a really fascinating browse is going to AOL.com on the Internet Archive and seeing really far back how it positioned itself to people who would have gone to AOL.com evidently from other online services and how it was kind of inviting its, itself to people who already know how to get online, but maybe don't have a stable way or maybe are on another service they're not happy with. It was basically showing, oh, look at all this stuff that you can do only on AOL. Because at the time, again, as a walled garden, it's uh, it's got all this all these features like chat rooms, of course, the message boards, the ways to communicate and the community itself, which was inside of AOL. And then another thing I thought was so fascinating is there was like, there was a section just for internet, which included Usenet. And there was someone who, uh, there were these little capsule reviews of news groups, of Usenet groups for the AOL users. And it was just kind of like giving them some, some tips on how to introduce yourself to Usenet, probably because I, I, I'm sure you know this, the, the eternal September, that moment when like AOL got on Usenet and everyone on Usenet made fun of them for, because they were all typing. Yeah, I mean, Usenet was no, not Usenet. I mean, AOL wasn't cool for the Silicon Valley crowd, but it, it would it be fair to say, Joanna, that this was the first moment in the popularization if not of the internet, because at that point there were no browsers, but certainly of email. Yeah, yeah, for email, I mean, that's, uh, and it's introducing email stage-wise, because you might, uh, I remember even as myself, as a teenager, as a user, not necessarily connecting what, what email was other than I'm messaging someone and then realizing my screen name at AOL.com oh, okay, so I can message people outside of AOL, like just like a step there, a step there, um, and just gradually understanding what the internet was and seeing that they had this channel just for the internet where you could click on the browser, where you could click on Usenet and you could connect outside of AOL. But at the time, again, in the 90s, there was, if you really just wanted to get to your desktop computer, hang out which was kind of the draw of AOL was hanging out and talking about music and talking about books talking about cycling cooking it was all very hobby hobby and identity interests um uh very fascinating and it also shows how diverse the AOL user base was the executive suite was not diverse but the users themselves 
very very diverse group of people were on AOL. Well, they were early. I mean, it, it didn't seem at the time, but I guess in retrospect, they were early adopters. What did AOL in your mind replace? Did it did it replace CompuServe and, and Prodigy or were they competitors? They were competitors. And this was another thing I found very fascinating when I um, looked over some, again, really deep in the internet archive, but I, I would come across people talking about their AOL strategy and their web strategy. So I think it was like L Magazine for one. The magazines especially, because when we think about media in the 90s would have been cable TV and magazines publishing that sent that was kind of the the frame that AOL had in mind and where they're they're positioning themselves so they they had a channel which was you know you click on a button at the main menu and maybe it's entertainment you'd click on entertainment and you'd see MTV um, a, a few maybe comedy central a few other cable channels with not websites because it's, think about like CD-ROM is kind of of that era, but like interactive features that were not websites, but were interactive, usually the same look, there would be unique content. If it was a magazine, maybe a few articles would have been syndicated on the AOL page. Um, and then maybe a chat room, definitely message boards. And anybody who, clicked on that way could communicate with other AOL users there. Yeah, I mean, it was by definition a community. We talk about it as a walled garden. But at the time, it seemed, I mean, we, we talked about the internet. It was the internet because there was nowhere else to go. Do you think it would be fair to say that in retrospect, Joanne, the, the death knell of AOL was the invention of the browser? Once, once you had Netscape and once Microsoft pioneered its own browser, AOL was essentially finished because it, it just it just became another website. Yeah, there are multiple things that you could kind of that led to. I mean, we could say collapse, but AOL is still alive and kicking, sort of. Um, it's just not like <laughs> it's not what it was. Um, but the the web was a, a centralized hub, so I would see again with the magazines like Playbill. I, I found an old article where Playbell said, we've shut down our AOL channel because people on Prodigy couldn't talk to people on AOL. It made the most sense because everybody can get to the web. So once AOL users became familiar with the web, once uh, they realized, you know, maybe your top, maybe your actual physical space neighbor is on Prodigy and you're on AOL and you find it a little strange that you can't talk to each other. Because well, you could email each other. You could email each other, but you couldn't hang out in the same forums and that sort of thing. So it, it was, it, it's, this is the very complicated and interesting element of that particular moment in internet history where centralized users were, were now centralized on the web, but they weren't quite in the web 2.0 uh, social media stage that would come just a couple years later. So there were websites where you could have a conversation in a website that set up a little forum um, or a chat room that was inside a website. And then in those years, of course, it's like 2002, that's Friendster, 2003, MySpace, 2004, Facebook, and we see where Yeah, and would it be also fair that 
the web 2.0 revolution empowered users your, your word users to um to be able to create their own content uh, on aol i mean obviously you could write emails and you could write text and images within the notice within the communities but it wasn't really that empowering it didn't turn its users into authors and that was the defining quality of web 2.0 yeah and blogging, especially blogging. Right, blogging was the first revolution yeah. uh, in the early yeah. 2000s. Yeah, I would say that there were a few, there were, I don't, I don't know percentage-wise, but AOL users certainly were also using things like GeoCities and possibly you know, things like tripods where you could set up a website. I remember just as a teenager, the people that I would chat with in these message boards with other teenage girls like me, um, plenty of them had like a home page mm. set up on GeoCities, a lot of fan pages for Tilda Swinton. GeoCities kind of was acquired, was it by the New York Times? Um, what, what, yeah, one of them were acquired by them. Yeah, the idea of, I mean, I had, a web, I had an internet startup in 96 called uh, Audio Cafe. And building a website even in those days was a complicated, expensive business. And that was the, another feature of Web 2.0 is suddenly anyone could essentially author their own website. It, it brought down the barriers in terms of technology for the creation of online content and networks. Yeah, I agree. Because when you think about Blogspot, when you set up for a, a blog with Blogspot, you got a URL that you could direct people to. That, to me, seems quite revolutionary in retrospect. I mean, to, to a certain extent, Twitter is the same way. You've got like a unique URL to your Twitter identity, but it's still like an identity within, within this social network as we associate it. But the sense of having your own website and thinking of yourself as part of the web rather than part of this big centralized whatever. I mean, that's, that's why I found, with AOL, I was in the piece. I really wanted to contrast it with, with the web, as in web being non-commercial, decentralized, and then also Facebook and why Facebook has just exaggerated what AOL was while also being inside the web. I mean, Facebook.com. It's is at the end of the day still just a website. Yeah, I mean, what Zuckerberg wanted to do, and he actually tried to do this in India, was re-engineer or reverse engineer the internet so the internet became facebook yeah yeah to go and, back and to aol but of course that was quite unrealistic to say the least to put it politely in the in the 2000s you wanted yeah. to own all internet traffic um, I mean, and give away internet access but of course there were legal and commercial and cultural problems with that yeah I, in retrospect do you think i mean we tend to vilify wealthy young men who own internet companies, but do you think in retrospect, Steve Case and the lieutenants who ran away AOL, they weren't so bad, especially compared to Zuckerberg or Musk these days? Um, I, I, with this piece, I wasn't looking as deeply at the C-suite and their dealings. I was looking more at like a user level. So I-, I But what do I you was... think? I mean, uh, Steve Case, I've always liked him personally. He's spent, uh, post AOL, he's invested his money in startups outside Silicon Valley and the West uh, and the East Coast. So he's very much committed to a kind of third way. 
I mean, he's a wealthy man, but uh, he seems less of a megalomaniac than Musk or Zuckerberg. That's really great to know. And it is something saying that, right? (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, one thing I have been thinking about, um, AOL didn't, didn't create its own browser and Facebook didn't either. So if you think about like what, right now, Google and Apple both have quite a large say in web standards because they both have browsers, very popular browsers. What, what, what might have happened if AOL had created a browser? But AOL, of course, eventually acquired after all the, the politics and commercial chaos of the mid-90s, eventually they acquired Netscape. How? Oh. Um, okay. See, this is, you can see now where, like, where my research just tailed off. <laughs> Sorry about that. Well, but it, but it was ironic because, of course, Microsoft believed they could crush Netscape. And in an odd way, they didn't so much crush Netscape as crush AOL. Uh, They never thought that Microsoft, which owned technology in the mid 90s, never thought of crush. They were much more concerned with Netscape than they were with AOL, I think. That's pretty interesting. And and then, of course, the ultimate, uh, and if this is irony or logical next step in the narrative is that AOL acquired Netscape, and then they all got acquired by Yahoo, which itself was in decline, which was a dynamic company in the mid-90s, and by the end of the 90s was clearly a company in decline. Yeah, yeah. This is something that I find really interesting about technology and its companies, where they're, they're still... They're still in existence. Someone is on the Yahoo payroll, but but they're still they're not what they were, and but they're still enormous companies. And I, it's kind of funny how they're in these like neither alive nor dead state. Like same right. thing about MySpace. It's MySpace. always very dynamic. Imagine a world where Google, for example, becomes Yahoo, um, and of course Google replaced Yahoo. Yahoo was the original search engine, but it was human curated search. And what Google figured out a way of doing was automating search. And now with AOI suddenly becoming revolutionary with G- GPT um, chatbots, maybe Google is is next to be destroyed. Um, mm. it, it's it's a very interesting narrative. Uh, Joanne, you mentioned that you were a, a young woman when you first came online in the 90s. Do you think that AOL changed our culture? You've mentioned chat rooms, music, history, but there was also a lot of chat when it comes to sex, people rethinking themselves, rethinking their relationship. Did AOL contribute to a a cultural rebellion, revolution when it comes, when it came to sex and sexuality that defined the internet in the 90s? You know, I wouldn't necessarily pin that on AOL, um, but the internet more broadly, um, because, but that said, AOL was such a big piece of the internet experience, the online experience in the 90s, that if you were a queer person, just just becoming uh, more aware of that aspect of your identity, you would have, you could have found people in um, different channels on AOL and had a sense of a break from reality when you logged in, logged into AOL. I mean, this is something that I, I found very 
freeing about this experience was that I would be at the family computer in the, li in the living room where everyone could see me, but no one's really looking over my shoulder while I'm typing. So I was doing something that theoretically could look educational from my parents' perspective, but I was just, you know, goofing off. Where, were you, where did you grow up? You weren't in New Hampshire, were you? No, I grew up outside of Boston, a town called Brockton. Um, okay. Well, you weren't unlike a lot of teenagers in those days, I think. What do you mean? <laughs> well, in not exactly doing what you were supposed to do on the internet, on the family computer, and essentially getting away with it. Yeah, I mean, and, and the thing is, because my real world identity wasn't wasn't connected to who I was on the internet, and a very common experience for, for teenagers especially was, if you embarrassed yourself among people in a chat room, you just created a new screening. <laughs> you just reinvented yeah, identity. I mean, there were, anonymity was ubiquitous. You could claim to be, you know, it's that old New Yorker cartoon in the in the 90s uh with the dog that said uh, you know anyone can be a dog on the internet and anyone yeah. could but finally joanne i wonder um what about the form of computers of course in aol was a company and a service very much associated firstly with the desktop and then with laptops today twitter facebook tiktok in particular they're all associated with um, mobile phones, sm smaller devices. Do you think that there is a, a connection between form and function, between the nature of the content and the experience on AOL and the fact that we were all on desktops, family computers, some of us were on laptops? Yeah, it is. It, it, it means you're carrying this digital double of yourself everywhere you go. And it's much harder to make that break from the internet experiences as all of us have at some point felt. Um, I haven't, I, I would say just to counter a little bit, things like Reddit and other, um, you know, Discord, there are opportunities for an AOL-like experience with some elements of anonymity. It's not the same, but it, it's still available. And I, I think, Pretty regularly, you will see youth, especially, try to carve out some something private and using the resources that they have, which are designed out for privacy. But still, you you can always kind of work your way around it. But I I haven't given up on that that dreamy element of the internet experience. Yeah, it's interesting that um, the chat rooms on AOL they weren't curated. And I'm sure there was a lot of quote unquote fake news, but there wasn't a lot of concern about it back then, that people were spreading propaganda or lies of one kind or another. Actually, they were moderated. And that was another big-ish scandal for the time where um, they had moderators who would exchange their labor for free monthly service. But you couldn't, you couldn't, could you on AOL, could you moderate private interactions you couldn't i'm could fairly you? certain that you couldn't i i would have to double check but I'm, I'm fairly certain that private um instant messages were not were not moderated well joanne i think we need to go back on aol i think after this conversation <laughs> it might be fun for a little while but I, I i don't necessarily trust that it wouldn't turn into what we associate with 
Facebook today eventually. <laughs> Excellent. That was